And I want to uh, ask you once again to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. Luke 23. We are, uh, well, nearing the end of our series in the Gospel of Luke. After a week away on vacation, last Sunday I was eager to get back and continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Today we finish up chapter 23, and make our way into the final chapter of Luke's gospel, chapter 24. So we're going to read from chapter 23, verse 50, into 24, verse, uh, verse 12. And uh, we're looking today at the, the burial and resurrection of, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we, uh, as we turn to read God's word, uh, let, me, let me put it this way, it's sometimes easy to just say, let's hear the word of God, and that just kind of flies over our head. So let me put it this way, let's listen to these words in a way that reflects what this text actually is, the very living and active word of God to us. So let's give our attention to it today. Picking it up in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping 
And looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I think there are two things we need to know if we're going to understand what Luke is really saying in this passage. The first thing is this, that uh, Luke's gospel is in distinction from the other three gospels written to an individual. I'm sure Luke anticipated that others would read his gospel, but the other gospels were written to communities. While Luke started out his gospel from the very beginning, telling us that he was writing to a specific individual by the name of Theophilus, whose name means something like God-friendly. If you've ever ever written a paper or given a talk or taught a Bible lesson, Sunday school class, or maybe uh, delivered some kind of speech, you, you know that there's an important principle that you need to keep in mind if you're ever going to communicate effectively to your audience. And the principle is simply this, that you need to have in mind the specific individual or group of individuals to whom you are speaking. And so I think this is, this is Luke writing this entire gospel, and he, and he has this principle in mind that he is writing to a specific individual by the name of Theophilus. We need to keep that in our minds. The second thing that we need to know is that Luke is not writing a biography. Sometimes we think of the Gospels that way, as if they're biographies, but they're not biographies. They're Gospels. (laughs) Uh, Biographies are written to give information, but Luke is writing a Gospel for transformation. He, he is writing this gospel to Theophilus in order that he might, as it were, have his name changed to Christophilus. In order that this man who is in some way, by his very name, friendly toward God, might become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's Luke in the, the final stages of his gospel writing. He's Conscious, I think, that every word counts what he wants to communicate to Theophilus. He has to say in these last chapters. And so I think these words matter enormously to Luke. And he's speaking about Christ, but he's speaking to Theophilus with the goal of seeing him become a Christ follower. And and so as you look at the verses that way, uh, I think there are four important words that come up in our passage that uh, highlight or summarize the experience of these first disciples. And it's this experience that Luke longs to see fulfilled in the life of his friend Theophilus. So I'm going to give you these four words and then we'll work our way through this passage and unpack them. The The four words are Perplexed, questioned, illumined, and proclaimed. Okay, so let's unpack those a little bit. The first word, which we see when these women who 
come to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body, the, the first thing that happens to them is what? Luke tells us that the first thing that happened to them is they were perplexed. They were thrown into confusion. They're all out of sorts. They couldn't make heads or tails of what had happened or what was going on. I think that's actually an indication, isn't it, that Luke is telling the truth. <laughs> because first of all, in a first century context, if you were trying to make a case for the resurrection of Jesus, don't take this the wrong way, this is just a statement of how things were at this time, you would not have women as your first credible eyewitnesses. But more than that, more than that, you wouldn't say that the first eyewitnesses who encountered the empty tomb on the moment of their arrival were thrown into utter confusion, having no idea what was going on. And I think that confusion arose for a very simple reason. And the simple reason is that they expected to find a corpse. That was their expectation. A couple days before, this Jesus whom they had been following was, was condemned and cruelly executed. And they had watched him die. Remember from a distance, they had watched their Jesus die slowly upon the cross until it was confirmed by a Roman soldier thrusting a spear into his side. And then this man, Joseph of Arimathea, just seems to come out of nowhere. A member of the council that had actually pursued the execution of Jesus. This Joseph didn't agree with the actions of the council. Something has happened in this man's life. And he works up the courage to approach Pilate and request the body of Jesus. And his request is granted. So he, he brings the body of Jesus down from the cross. And these women are watching it all unfold. And Joseph lovingly wraps the body of Jesus and takes it to this new tomb where a body has never been laid. And they've, 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 they've followed and they've watched and they've marked and they've, they've marked the spot. So they've seen the body go into the tomb. And in a couple of days they're going to come back sorrowing, mourning, lamenting the tragic death of their dear friend Jesus. And so they're going with the assumption that this body that was once alive is now lifeless. They're expecting a corpse. But now on Sunday morning, they come to the tomb, they find it empty, and they're thrown into confusion. Now, if, I, think if you, I think if you were making this up, right, if you were the one writing this story and you were making it up, I think you'd say, well, the, the, the women arrived at the scene, they saw the tomb empty, and they immediately recalled everything Jesus had said to them about how he was going to go to Jerusalem and die and rise again, and then they are going to run back to the other disciples and tell them, and enthusiasm broke out among the disciples. But Luke's account of the resurrection, here are some words that describe the disciples' response. They're perplexed, they're astonished, they're slow to believe, they're startled, they're frightened, they're troubled, and even doubting. Okay, so why, apart from the fact that it's true, why does Luke include this in his gospel? Why would he include this detail about the perplexity 
of the disciples as he is writing to Theophilus. I think there's a simple reason for it. I think he understands that if this, this man who has been you know, raised up among the Roman gods, the Roman pantheon, is unsure about you know, any true God. Maybe he's taken an interest in the Jewish religion. But if he's ever going to become a follower of Jesus Christ, first he has to be thrown into confusion. He needs to understand that his own ways of thinking about God, his own ways of thinking about religion, and even his own ways of thinking about who this Jesus of Nazareth is, needs to be thrown into utter confusion because that's the only way he's ever going to arrive at any kind of clarity about who Jesus truly is. Because his old ideas about God, about religion, about Jesus need to be confronted and challenged. See, he he needs to begin to realize that there is something unique about Jesus. When, you know, maybe to this point, along with the crowds and the multitudes, he said something like, you know, Jesus, you know, I, I, I like to think of Jesus this way. He's a really nice guy, great teacher, but he's really, he's, he's really like me, just maybe a little bit better. And all of that needs to be thrown into confusion. And, and that's where these women are. And as we move on in the story, in the midst of their confusion, then we come to the second word because they're, they're questioned. They're asked a question in verse 5. One of the men, an angel actually, Ask them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? That's that's exactly what they were doing. In their minds, Jesus was as dead as dead could be. And it was a tragic situation. So they're coming filled with sadness and sorrow there to anoint the corpse out of affection for for Jesus and all that he had done for them. But the angel is saying to them, look, you're in the wrong place. You're looking for the living among the dead and the living, well, they, they ain't to be found here. <laughs> and so you see why it is that these women are thrown into confusion because they're beginning to, they're beginning to realize that the way that they thought about Jesus is not the way that Jesus really was. And this leads us, I think, to ask an important question of ourselves regarding the the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. We can can sometimes take this fundamental detail of the Christian gospel so, so lightly. So let's honestly ask ourselves this question today. Would it make any real difference to our lives if Jesus were still dead? Would it affect our lives in any way whatsoever if Jesus was still as dead as dead could be? You know, we could, we could still admire Jesus. We could still admire his teaching. We could still try to follow his example we could we could still 
uh, we could still take some of, from his teaching to maybe try to instill some morals into our children's lives. We could still pay some religious respects to Jesus and maybe celebrate his birth around Christmas time and feel bad for him around Good Friday. Oh, what Jesus suffered, so awful, so tragic. But would it make any real difference in our lives if Jesus were still dead? You see, what Luke is wanting us to understand is that when Christians confess the resurrection of Jesus, we are not merely saying that Jesus is alive in our minds or in our hearts. Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. No, that's, that's not it. We are confessing the objective historical reality of the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are confessing that a dead man was brought by the power of God back to life. That it was not a resuscitation. It was a resurrection. The raising of Jesus to the immortal splendor of a, of a body that could never die again. So, so I wonder if you, you see what Luke is saying. In the big picture, he's been wanting us to see from Luke chapter 9 that, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knew why he was going. He was going to go to the cross. And he was going to go to the cross to pay for sin. Not for his own sins. Remember, he's declared innocent at least six times in Luke chapter 23. He is going to pay for the sins of his people. And so he comes under divine condemnation and absorbs all of the wrath of Almighty God against the sins of his people. And then he died. In other words, Jesus experienced the full consequences of all that our sin deserves. Divine condemnation and death. Death couldn't hold him, this passage is telling us. And Jesus was, after he paid for sin, in his resurrection, he, he disarmed Satan. He conquered death. He was declared to be the righteous son of God. So that all who, who belong to him, their, their sin is dealt with. Satan's accusing mouth is slammed shut and a hole has been broken through death because the Lord Jesus himself has gone through death and come out alive on the other side so that now those who belong to him await a resurrection harvest to be raised with him to everlasting life. So we could go on and on and on this morning about how the implications of the, the death and resurrection of Christ are are life-shaping and life-transforming for us individually, but also cosmic in scope in terms of their significance. So let's come back then to that question. Has, has it made any real difference to your life that today the physical body of Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? The body of Jesus has a zip code. 
It's locatable. It's somewhere. It's, it's in heaven, wherever that is. But the, a man who was once dead was raised back to life. And death has been conquered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I wonder, would it, would it actually be exactly the same then? If, if uh, in your life, if Jesus were as dead as dead could be. You see, that what I'm trying to get at here is, we need to understand, that is the difference between worthless, mere moralism, and authentic Christianity. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we move from, from this initial confusion to the, to the question that's asked that turns them around. And that's all it took. It took a question. What are you doing looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. And then comes this moment of illumination in verse 6. Remember, they, they remind them. Remember how he told you. Well, what did Jesus tell them? He told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again from the dead. He had told them, actually had told them more than once, but they had never really taken it in. But now amazingly, you see, there's this, it's, it's as though this shaft of light breaks in with, with just a few words, and it, it brought this amazing illumination, this new understanding, of course, of course this is what he said he would do. Of course this is what he said would happen to him. And it's happened to him in the way he said it would happen to him. So they began to realize, let me, let me put it this way, they, they began to realize that the Jesus they had followed was not a tragically dead man, but a victorious risen Savior. And there is this radical paradigm shift that is taking place in how they thought about Jesus and who he is. And so they had been, they had been looking at him in the wrong way. They'd been you know, looking at him through the wrong end of the telescope. It's actually it's interesting that one of the questions that has appeared recently in Luke's gospel during, during Jesus' trial is the question, Jesus, who are you really? And, and that's what they're discovering here. They're discovering who Jesus really is. And to, to further help Theophilus, notice something else Luke does in this passage. Did, I wonder if you caught this, that in the story, he slips in two, uh, two titles, two names for Jesus. Uh, the first one is in verse 7. He speaks about Jesus as the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man is, a, is an Old Testament figure prophesied there telling us that when the Messiah would come, he would come and, and establish and usher in God's kingdom and all of those who trust in this Son of Man would begin to experience some of the benefits of being a part of the kingdom of the Son of Man. And so this, this Son of Man would begin to restore these people to, to, a, to a renewed humanity, to something like what God intends our lives to be. And Luke has been focusing on this throughout his gospel. He's taken a special interest in it, I think, as a physician. 
The way Jesus has gone about healing the sick, giving eyesight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, causing the lame to walk, even raising the dead and restoring family members back to one another. And so Luke is teaching us something here about the significance of Jesus as the Son of Man, restoring and transforming life. And then the other title that Luke slips in is in, is in verse 3, where he identifies Jesus as, uh, as Lord. Now, some of you might know this, that in the first century, it was not, it was not customary to read the way that we probably read books to ourselves today, and that is silently. You know, we're just reading in our, in our minds. Uh, characteristically, in the first century, if a person was reading to themselves, they would, they would read out loud. Okay, so imagine this scene with me for a moment. Here is, here's Theophilus, and he has grown up in a Roman world where there was one that you called Lord, and his name was the Caesar, the emperor. Caesar is Lord, was a confession of allegiance to the Roman Empire during this time. So imagine Theophilus reading this gospel out loud and coming to this verse. But when they went in and they did not find the body of the Curios, the Lord Jesus. Did, did Theophilus dare to read those words out loud? Did he dare to say from his own lips, Lord Jesus? That was a completely uh, countercultural, even subversive confession to say that Jesus is Lord Jesus. So again, I, I imagine, I know this is a little bit of imagination, but I imagine as Luke is writing this passage with Theophilus in mind, coming to these words, and maybe pausing and praying and saying, Father, I pray that as Theophilus reads these words out loud that he might pause and ponder. Dare I say these words? Lord Jesus. So you see what Luke is doing in this passage? Yes, this is a, a historical account of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Luke is telling the story in a way that he is also at the same time quietly asking Theophilus, Theophilus, where are you with all of this? Have you been thrown into confusion about what you thought about God, what you thought about religion, what you thought about even Jesus of Nazareth? Have you been, have you been brought through by the Spirit of God to a place of illumination where you now gladly confess Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is Lord. And, and does, the, does the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ make any real difference for your life? And we see the, the last word that describes these women as they as they move from, from perplexity and through this question to illumination, then finally to a glad proclamation. 
You know, here's, a, here's another aspect of this story that I just think, yeah, th- this, is, this, is, this is real history. <laughs> Who are the ones lovingly tending to the body of Jesus or attempting to do so? It's, it's the women. The women are going. I've often found they handle these sort of situations far better than men. But it's the women who are going to show their affection for Jesus. Where are the men? <laughs> oh, the men are back at the house somewhere having breakfast. And the, the women who have seen the empty tomb, spoken to the angel, who have had this moment of illumination, come back, come in, and, and the men clearly see something's going on. So what's, what is it? Speak. What's happened? And they say, well, he's not in the tomb. He's risen from the dead. Don't you, you remember what he said to us? Do you remember how he said he was going to Jerusalem to die and then rise again? It's happened just as he said. And what is the first response to the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? I can tell you in a single word, the first response to the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection was nonsense. Stop with those silly old wives' tales. Stop with these silly idle tales. This isn't funny. This is serious. They didn't believe. That's Luke says that they did not believe the report. Think about that. The apostles... <laughs> who formed the foundation along with the Old Testament prophets, the very foundation of the church of Jesus Christ as living stones, they did not believe the report of Jesus' resurrection. Again, if you were making this stuff up, I don't think you would have included that fact. But you see, since it's true, you can afford to put that down, that this was not some hoped-for event. This was the last thing these men expected. When these women came back with this gospel proclamation, there was at least one man who said to himself, you know what, I'm going to go check this out for myself. And it was Peter. Peter left and ran to the tomb, and he looks in, he stoops in, and what does he see? He sees the grave clothes alone, lying there on the ledge. Now why, why that little detail? I mean, Luke could have just said, Peter went, found the tomb empty. Why why this note about the grave clothes lying there? Well, I I think, I hope that none of us buy into the ridiculous idea that the body of Jesus was stolen by these first disciples and this whole story was made up about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just, Just think about what needs to happen in order for that to have taken place. You've got this band of disciples, men and women, who come together and say, you know what, we, we know that uh, Jesus' life has, has ended in tragedy. But we, uh, we so appreciate his teaching that we want to perpetuate it for generations to come. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make up a story that... Though Jesus died upon the cross, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. And and therefore, he is is, uh, the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So what we're going to have to do is go to the tomb, overcome the Roman soldiers, move the stone away, 
and steal the body and hide it so that it can never be found. And we'll start telling people Jesus rose again from the dead. See what Luke is doing with this little detail? What grave robber goes into the tomb and takes the time to unwrap the body and then neatly fold the grave clothes to leave them there on the ledge? Luke was already aware of this silly uh, objection that was made to explain away the resurrection of Christ. But then notice what Luke says about Peter. Come back to the theme that we're reflecting on today. He says, Peter went in the tomb, saw that it was empty, and and went home uh, marveling or stunned. I think we might even say puzzled. Now, what's so fascinating about that is when you go on in the next story, you meet people who are, again, confused about the resurrection of Jesus. And then you go on to the end of this chapter when Jesus actually physically appears before his disciples and the whole group, the whole, all of the people are confused. And so everybody in this chapter, as they discover the resurrection of Jesus Christ, are thrown into confusion. So you get the message? The message is that the confused, are illumined, and then they tell others about it, and they go on to tell others about it, and they're confused and illumined, and they tell others about it, and they're confused and illumined, and that's the way it works. You see, when the truth of the gospel is proclaimed, people, people say, look, this, this, doesn't seem, this doesn't seem to fit my preconceptions about God and the way the world works. Well, yeah. (laughs) This doesn't seem to fit my preconceptions about religion and about what people have said to me about Jesus of of Nazareth. Because this gospel, it comes to me and it's saying to me, this Jesus, he died for sin, but has risen from the grave and he has He has broken the neck of our last enemy, death, for himself and all who belong to him. And he has brought into this dark world a shaft of light that brings hope and a prospect of a future. And even if while we are called to carry the cross following in his footsteps in this life, it is still a life of deep abiding joy And resurrection power. And so as he begins to conclude and wrap up his gospel. You see what Luke is longing for. He's longing that his friend Theophilus would be thrown into this kind of confusion. And and by the spirit receive illumination. About who Jesus really is. About what Jesus Christ has really done and and then become willing no matter what it would cost him and it would surely have been costly to go on to proclaim to others that Jesus Christ has died and risen again from the dead and now he summons us all to turn from our sin our waywardness our each going our own way, in our own unique way, saying, God, I want you out of my life. I don't want anything to do with you. Turn from that, turn to Jesus, trust in him and receive forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Let's be clear about this, dear friends. The way that 
that our sin manifests itself might look different from person to person. Some of us perhaps have stories where our personal rebellion against God has manifested itself in very public, maybe even shameful and humiliating ways. Others of us, though, have been saying the same thing to God, but in a polite, cleaned up, nice, orderly way of living a good moral life, but at the same time, essentially saying to God, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't need you. I'll make my own way. And dear friends, the gospel confronts both kinds of sinners and says, Christ is dead for you. Turn to him and believe because he has died for sin. He has been raised to newness of life and he has opened up the door of salvation for all who would come to him. So that's the message for Theophilus. And dear friends, it's the message for you and me that Jesus Christ has suffered and died. But that's not the end of the story. The death of Jesus on the cross is worthless without the resurrection. They're two sides of the same coin. One means nothing without the other. But both have been accomplished. Jesus has died upon the cross. Jesus has risen again from the dead. And now he bids us to turn from sin, to turn to him for forgiveness and restoration as we submit our lives to him as the Lord and as the Son of Man who makes us whole again. And so, dear friends, may the story of these first disciples be our story. And may we, like them, go forth gladly proclaiming the good news. Jesus has died for sin and has risen again from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that by your awesome power you raised Lord Jesus, from the grave. We thank you that he is the Son of Man and the Lord. We need him to come to us, to restore us in our humanity and to rule over us in our lives. So by your grace, give us the faith to turn to him and to trust in him and to be able to say to others that we have encountered the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit through his word as he has come to us for our sakes. We pray that we would joyfully proclaim him and make him known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.